not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on. And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of recovery in 2011. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Now, before we meet my guest, I just want to give you a quick reminder to go to your favorite ebook application, be it Apple, Kobo, or Kindle and check out the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide, which is about staying alcohol-free during the holiday season. So as I record this in mid-October, we are just past Thanksgiving here in Canada. I know in the U.S. you are headed into Thanksgiving. So this stretch of the year from now right through until New Year's can be really tough for people in recovery. It is never too early to start planning ahead. Chances are this year with the COVID pandemic in full swing, we won't be doing as much socializing as we usually would. But I have a feeling that that which we do partake in might be largely with our family of origin and could be incredibly tense. So I hope that you uh, take a look through that book and look at all the ways that you can support your sobriety as you go through your various obligations over the coming months. Okay, let's meet our guest. You know... I think that this might go down in history as the most repeated Bubble Hour guest ever. I'm talking today with my friend from New Zealand, Lotta Dan, also known as Mrs. D. She's here today to talk about her third book, The Wine O'Clock Myth. Now, no doubt you've read and loved her first two recovery memoirs, Mrs. D is Going Without and Mrs. D is Going Within. And with this book, she turns her gaze outward and takes on the role of alcohol in our society, how that narrative is harmful and how it needs to be challenged. Lotta Dan, welcome back to the Bubble Hour. It's so great to be here. Hello. It's nice to hear your voice. Gosh, I wish we were neighbors. Wouldn't we have fun? (laughs) I know. I feel very far away. (laughs) Well, you and I have a lot in common. We have a a similar amount of recovery under our belts. And um, we both had quite high bottoms because we both recognized that we were on a similar trajectory. So for me, it was that I was drinking daily. And every time I tried to quit, which was almost every day, I ended up drinking more, which was a lot like going on a diet and gaining 10 pounds, (laughs) which I'm also familiar with. For you, the thing that hit you, I believe, is that you caught yourself hiding empty bottles and you realized that was a new uh, stage in in terms of becoming deceptive and hiding your drinking. And I think for you, that's what made you realize you were on a trajectory uh, on the um, spectrum of addiction. So my question for you isn't about addiction, it's about recovery. Do you think that recovery has a trajectory? I feel like that's represented in the books that you've written Mrs. D is going without, Mrs. D is going within, and the wine o'clock myth. Does that represent your trajectory of recovery? It certainly does in terms of just looking at the alcohol. So the first memoir was all about how I was, you know, 
going in that first year of taking the alcohol away. And that's a very similar path for many people. I mean, everyone's story is different, but there's similar things we go through, just learning how to deal with cravings, learning how to socialize, learning how to, you know, just not drink, literally not drink every day. Um, And then the second memoir is about me needing to, you know, develop emotional coping mechanisms that I never had because I used to drink alcohol every day. Um, and this third book is about, as you say, more of the wider picture of alcohol in our society. So, yeah, my my um, books, you know, cover that focus just looking at the alcohol, but my recovery is far more than that now. And um, it gets deeper and richer and in some ways easier and in some ways more complicated the longer I am sober. And so now... Yes, I've just written a book all about alcohol, but actually in my personal life, I'm not dealing with that stuff anymore. I'm dealing with other stuff. I'm dealing with other behaviors that aren't perhaps healthy all the time, um, other ways to look after myself because things that worked for me three or four years ago might not work anymore and I need to develop and keep an eye on new tools that I have to you know, put in my life to stay well. So it's it's a such a rich you know ever changing process. I love it, but it's it is um, you know gritty at times, as you probably <laughs> know as well. Does that surprise you? Um, yes and no. I mean, no, it doesn't anymore because I'm I'm used to being sober and I'm used to life tripping you up and needing to constantly you know, things aren't smooth all the time and and things happen sometimes that you can't even predict. You know, someone you love dearly who was 100% well might suddenly get sick and die and and you didn't predict that and it throws you into an emotional tailspin that you need to manage without reaching for alcohol. So it doesn't surprise me because I'm used to that now, but it does surprise me that every year, every year you sort of, learn more you think I must know myself by now I mean I'm I'm, ne- I'm nearly 50 I've been sober for nine years surely I know myself but I still can surprise myself so it's a it's an ever-changing thing I've got this wonderful mentor sort of supervisor woman that I work with here in New Zealand she's in her 70s she's been in recovery for 40 years she's amazing and I say I said to her once I think when I turned about six years sober I said oh Susie Last year was the most um, interesting and kind of revealing. And she just looked at me and smiled and said, that's the way it goes. Like every year is that. And I was like, all right, okay. You know, we were talking just before I hit the record button, we were talking about the book of poetry that I released earlier this year. And one of the poems that I wrote about was the way that we're like shedding a skin every few years and we get to kind of dance around in it. But but then, you know, something new just keeps surfacing and, and that no matter how old we get, I mean, hopefully we keep doing this until we are vibrant old ladies that aren't afraid to just keep learning about ourselves and not stuck in our ways. Like, I feel like that's the most youthful mm, dynamic thing we can hope for ourselves. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it too, shedding a skin and it can feel dynamic and, and all the rest of it. But what it actually does, I think over time is 
it slowly just brings you down into the ground and into yourself. And so even though we sometimes in the inside, we feel like we're in turmoil, I do believe that from the outside, we do sort of put out an air of calmness and groundedness, just because we're so real all the time. And other people can detect that. I really do. Sometimes I feel like I'm a hot mess <laughs> on the inside because I'm so emotional and I'm crying all the time. You know, I'm a very watery person, I now know. But I still think people around me see what they mainly get from me is a kind of groundedness and calmness that just comes from living how we're choosing to live, which is always in it. You know, we're never avoiding, running, numbing. We're in it. And it just, it does sort of lead to, yeah, there's no other way to put it, like a groundedness that's that is really beautiful. I mean, I just am so grateful to be living this I, way. I think you're right in that people respond to it. It seems to me that if we're if we are open to change, we are living in a way that says, I'm not super attached to my perspective here. Like I'm open to the idea that I might not be right about everything, which was a new way yes. for me to live. And when people see that in us, they know that we can yes. hear other ideas without arguing or, right? So they don't have right. to be as defensive. Uh, yeah, I've not thought of that, but I do notice that in myself, particularly with close family members like sisters that I had, where before I might have been a bit more defensive about my viewpoint or opinion, I'm more kind of able to be fluid with them. So I'll be like, oh, yeah, no, I can see what you mean. And it, it just sort of diffuses any potential tension. And plus, it's more real. I mean, life isn't black and white. I know we like to operate in these paradigms, certainly in this political landscape that we seem to have around us. It's, everything's either fiercely this way or that way. It's not like that. It's It's got to be more fluid and more nuanced. And, you know, we, we are operating in a gray area. And, and being able to be comfortable with that is really mm-hmm. a gift. You're right, especially in this day and age. And as I say that, I, I'm fully picturing my sisters. Not They don't listen to this podcast, I don't think. Hi, if you do. But I'm picturing them hearing me saying this and rolling their eyes and laughing, thinking, oh, no, you still argue <laughs> way too much. <laughs> but I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one sister who actually got sober a couple of years ago and she did she wasn't a really habitual problematic drinker like me but she had a relationship with the stuff you know there was a little bit of push and pull there for her but she said she literally just got to the point I mean this is the best thing that's ever happened to me where she said I just wanted what you've what you had Lotta there was something about you know the way that you were I wanted a piece of that and so she chose to remove alcohol from her life and she's now she's gone through a recovery process she's amazing and so together we can now share in this new way of being which is just so rewarding that is so beautiful wow yeah that's amazing okay let's talk about your book the wine o'clock myth you have um broken this book out into five parts sort of different aspects it's like you did a 360 around the problem and looked at it from all sides so you start out by talking about our boozy world and the way that things have become so as Anne delta johnson calls it alcocentric and it's just there's alcohol is kind of oozed into everything and you know i recently was working on some research for a historical novel that i had set in the 1970s and one thing i had to 
learn about and remember from my childhood was that back then cars didn't have cup holders in them because we didn't take coffee with us everywhere we went. There weren't, there weren't travel mugs. You had a thermos. And if you were having a picnic, you might've taken the top off and poured some coffee into the lid of the thermos and drank that with your lunch. But we didn't walk around with a cup of coffee in our hands the way that we do now. And so coffee has kind of moved into all aspects of our life in a way that we don't even think about now. And all of a sudden, as you point out, something similar is happening with wine now, that it's popping up in yoga classes. It's it's in movie theaters when we go to the movies and uh, at the hairdressers. It's, <laughs> it's everywhere. everywhere. How did we get here? How did this happen? Well, it happened slowly. It happened slowly over time. But there was a particular shift, um, and it happened around in New Zealand in the late 80s, but it was happening around the globe into neoliberal politics, which was, you know, giving people the freedom to choose. And so policies and regulations around things like alcohol loosened up, loosened up. There were less sort of restrictions Things, you know, it was available in more places, more marketing was allowed, and the slowly, it's like a drip, drip, drip of a tap. Slowly, things loosened and loosened to where we're in crazy land right now. It is so liberalized, and we have lost sight of the fact that this is an addictive drug. And by the way, it causes cancer. So we're in this weird situation where we've got this, this, product which is everywhere being touted as a good thing outwardly and yet the truth of it is far from that and it's a disconnect so my big overall argument with this book is alcohol is not going anywhere and nor should it people can choose to do what they want but we need an environment that is more um, reflective of the caution that needs to be taken because the problem with the environment we've got now where it's just everywhere, I mean literally everywhere, is that it isolates people who are struggling. So they feel they're weak, they're bad, they're broken, and they hide, and then they don't reach out for help. And that is the big issue. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because when we're drinking, often it's because we're alone and we're lonely and we're kind of longing for connection or longing to numb our loneliness. And then the booze ends up isolating us even more. Yeah, and we've also allowed our um, thinking to be really fixed in this mindset that alcohol is a good treat or reward for being a hardworking woman or, or man, but obviously I focus on women with this book. You know, that it's the perfect reward for ourselves. It's self-care almost. You know, it's a good thing. And this is flawed thinking. If you really drill down into it, it's not a good treat or reward. It, it gives you an instant dopamine hit, but then it depresses you because it's a depressant, right? It depresses the central nervous system and does nothing to actually nourish you, make you feel good, ground you, all that stuff we were just talking about, what we get now, we're sober. So it's a massive mind shift that we have to have collectively as a community um, of humans, you know, that, hang on a minute, this isn't the truth we're telling ourselves. And a big part, a big finger needs to be pointed at the marketing. That's about to <laughs> a go big middle finger. <laughs> they can say what they want. Oh yeah. 
I'm doing that right now in my living room in New Zealand, up you industry. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that in a, in a minute, but let's talk about this idea of self-care because we don't think of, you know, a tanning bed as self-care. We know that that's super bad for us. We don't think of having a cigarette as being self-care. Um, do you think we'll... But we, we used, used to. to. We mm-hmm. used to. Doctors used to recommend mm-hmm. smoking, mm-hmm. right? Smoking was attached to major sporting events. You know, all of these glamorous people, the Marlborough man, the lovely Virginia Slims women, you know, that that we used to do that. But as a collectively, as a race, humans have realized, okay, this isn't right. I mean, we laugh mm-hmm. about it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's a very similar thing with alcohol. So, um, yeah, we just have to have to open our eyes. You know, Lotta, I 100% started smoking as a teenager because I thought it made me look older and more sophisticated. And the same with drinking. And now when I go to my mom's senior's home and I see these sweet old ladies who were glamorous, martini drinking, cigarette smoking ladies in the 50s that are dragging their oxygen around with them, I'm thinking, oh boy, I'm really glad we figured out that that was bad for us. (laughs) So do you think we'll get yeah. there with alcohol do you think we'll have that i mean you and i are part of it really are part of the solution i yeah, hope we're having yeah i really do yeah. i do i have absolute faith because humans are very um wonderful clever creatures and collectively we will wake up and we will remedy this but i i don't think i mean and there's as you say you and me and all of this you know you and i have been in this recovery online space for many years now nine or so years and even you and I can see in the time since we've been blogging how much it has exploded <laughs> with people who are now sharing recovery-based material, promoting sobriety. You know, th- there's a massive online and, and in the real world, you know, presence around recovery, but it's still kind of niche. Mm-hmm. It hasn't filtered out into the mainstream yet, but it, it will happen. I do have faith. I just, I just don't know if if the time is right now, but it's 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 coming. I think there's other issues, obviously, to deal with, especially 2020 with the pandemic and all the rest of it. But, yeah, I do think eventually, yes, we, there will be a time where we look back and we go, that was crazy. You could drink at the movies. You would be given a bottle of wine to your school sports coach or, you know, the real estate agent would give you wine to congratulate you on buying a house, like just how ubiquitous it was with the whole process of, of living. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The hopefully we'll look back on these interviews that we've done over the years with the same way that we look at the old Virginia Slims ads in the magazines and laugh at what a silly time we lived in. And <laughs> they might look back at us talking now and saying, oh, wow, those women really, you know, had to go online to get support because they couldn't find it in their community. They were trailblazers. <laughs> oh, time marches on. I should note too, you know, you mentioned the sort of the, the neoliberalism of, of having freedom of choice. And I should say that I'm in Canada, you're in New Zealand. And so we use the word liberal to, to talk about having freedom of choice and sort of a personal agency. Uh, a lot of our listeners are in the U.S. where when they talk about liberalism, they're talking about politics. So this isn't a political statement. This is more of a societal statement, right? Mm, yeah, you absolutely. have an entire section of your book that takes on big alcohol and how we are being played by the industry. So talk about that. Well, we are. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we are being played. You, you need to know this. And 
you know, I'm sure there are very lovely people working within the liquor industry who are just, you know, working hard to make money and pay their mortgage and raise their children and they're really good at marketing and advertising and creative ideas and all the rest of it. Um, but also, you know, at the top of those industries, there have got to be some people that are knowing what they're doing is morally ambiguous, to say the least. But at the end of the day, they're an industry that they're, they're solely interested in their bottom lines, which is making money, selling a product. Let's sell this product as much as we can. And so that's what they do. And they do it by targeting us very well. I mean, they, they know how to do overt, but also subliminal messaging. They've got social media, which is just ripe for the picking. I mean, the, a lot of the alcohol memes that swirl around Facebook and the like, you know, for women especially, those jokey, cartoony memes of, you know, women holding massive wine glasses or, you know, the little cartoon images where they're talking about, you know, needing it to deal with their kids. And a lot of that stuff is generated by the liquor industry, I've been told, by experts in Scotland. Um, we are a massive un market for them. We, we've got money to spend. We do the household shopping. We are emotional you know, gloriously emotional creatures and they just play on us. They they prey on us. They tell us their product is going to make our lives better and they do it in very clever, glossy, subtle and overt ways and it needs to be curbed because at the end of the day, like I say, for a lot of people, it's not the answer to their hard day or their tricky colleague or whatever. It's just not and we need to... We need to just not let them constantly try and tell us that they're going to improve our lives. And when you say we, you mean women in particular. Women in particular. Like look at gin, for example. There's no accident that gin's having a resurgence. People are having gin clubs. There's books on how to make gins and botanicals and organics and all this lovely flavoured gin. That literally came out of meetings and boardrooms where a bunch of People, I won't say men because I don't know that, but had said, right, gin, let's let's go after the gin market. Let's t push it for women. Let's do this and that. And they have a plan. They executed it, and it worked. <laughs> I mean, but, uh, do you know about how lots of people who are having gin clubs and gins like this new no, big this thing? No, this passed me by. I'm not up on that. <laughs> Oh, well, it is in New Zealand. It's huge. I've got friends who belong to gin clubs. There's books in them. And I think in the UK as well. It's, um, it's you know, it literally came. It's like when the Alco Pops came out, and that was a way to get younger women to drink, make them sweet, make them pretty. And, you know, it's always pink and glossy and, yeah, it's all just a ruse. They're just, they're not looking after us, ladies. No, they have a vested interest in helping your addiction along. So especially if you move into hard alcohol, um, your trajectory can really speed up when you're drinking the hard stuff. And women are um, built a lot differently than men when it comes to metabolizing alcohol. And so we are really susceptible to physical addiction and we just don't metabolize that alcohol the same way. So, I mean, it's... It's uh, a money-making machine, really, for the alcohol industry, isn't it, to market to women? Yeah. And left to their own devices, which they are largely, like in New Zealand, the we've got a very weak um, advertising standards authority code that they're meant to adhere to with their marketing, but it's self-managed. They don't, you know, they don't 
no one actually looks at what they're doing and really wraps them over the knuckles. So left to their own devices, they're not going to change. I mean, why would they? They, they're, wanting, they're an industry. They want to make money. So it has to come down to government regulations, ultimately. Um, they need to tighten up. And it's a brave thing for a politician to do because, you know, they don't want to be called, you know, the fun police wowsers. People don't like having liberties taken away or um, rights or access to things that they've had taken from them. But it needs to come from brave governments saying, we're going to tighten up the rules here. We're we're not going to let you put glossy images of happy, healthy people everywhere drinking alcohol because, you know, where are the images of the housewives on their knees vomiting in the toilet like I used to be? I mean, I used to get drunk on a Wednesday night. I mean, it makes me cry even thinking about it. And I'd... I'd, I'd literally be on my knees trying to vomit quietly so I didn't wake up the kids. Yeah. You know, where's that ad on? Where's that? Yeah, on that Facebook? doesn't sell quite as many bottles of booze, does it? Did you, uh, were you surprised when you started researching this section of the book? And how did you go about finding out what's going on in those boardrooms? Well, I had the absolute <laughs> most amazing thing happen. I put out a call on my Facebook page because the book's interspersed with interviews with women about their um, own relationship with alcohol. And I put a call out on my Facebook page for women who were still habitually drinking, who might be interested in talking to me about, you know, what they're thinking and feeling about their um, alcohol habit. And I was contacted by a woman in Australia who used to work in the liquor industry for years. She was an insider. And so um, I spoke to her anonymously. She's hidden her identity, which is totally fine. She wants to protect herself because these guys are scary. Um, And she just told me about the sorts of stuff that goes on in these boardrooms. And then I also interviewed this amazing professor um, called Carol Elmsley over in Scotland, who is part of an alcohol research um, group who does amazing work in this space. And they've also got quite a bit of knowledge about the types of you know, nefarious things that go on from the booze industry. She She's the one who told me that they they believe it's hard to prove, but they do believe a lot of the content on social media is generated by mm-hmm. the industry. Mm-hmm. So influencers are being uh, rewarded for posing with a glass of champagne or having some pretty bottles in the background, that kind of thing, or actually creating the, oh, yep. the memes yep. and the silly onesies for oh, babies yep. and all that nonsense. Yes, both both of those things. So yes, they pay influencers to, and it's so subtle you don't even realize it's just a, a healthy, happy-looking, young, gorgeous thing by the pool with a bikini on drinking rosé. And I don't know what the regulations are around the world, but here, um, up until very recently, you didn't need to even say that that was an ad. You just put a little, um, you know, you tag the the company, and that's really really powerful image images. And then yes, they do believe a lot of the memes. Um, are generated, um, but who would know? Because all you need is a couple of people to to share it, and these things take off like they wildfire. definitely do. And you know, I see them shared. And if you're not struggling with alcohol, or if you're not in that contemplative stage of <laughs> the worrying about your drinking, your relationship with alcohol, they hit you as funny, or maybe they hit you as um, something to hide behind. Like we use humor to, to hide our fears, right? So when I see people sharing them, yeah. I think, oh, so are they a normal drinker or are they deflecting a little bit with this? But when I was drinking problematically, I 
probably wouldn't have shared a bunch of those memes because I would have been afraid to in any way t- tip people off as to how much I was drinking. You probably had a little worried in a dialogue at that point that you were conscious enough to not want to promote your drinking, yeah, if you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I think so. Although, who knows? I mean, it's easy to think I know what I'd do, but definitely it's it's interesting when you see it and you're outside of it and you're like, wow, you know, that that's weird that you find that funny. Like, I find that sad. I know, but then some of the people sharing it, they're not actually happy and and they they want to project an image of fun and maybe they're feeling quite lonely. like we know that a lot of what is portrayed on social media isn't real and doesn't it's not even that it's lies it's just doesn't always show the yeah, whole right. truth I mean I've got friends that they genuinely show pictures of a lovely sunny afternoon out with their kids but I know that they're actually going through for example a terrible marriage breakup and are feeling anxious and have been to the doctor to, to try and get some medication to help them sleep. Like it's just, it's just not real. And so that's why I've really tried to encourage in this book people to really have their eyes open and, and not share the stuff because it is so damaging. And at the end of the day, you're just lining the bank accounts of an industry that doesn't care about well, us. Well, of talk about the algorithms in social media that target women, and I'm assuming men, but women, I think, use social media more than men do. So talk about the way that we're targeted through social media. Well, all you have to do is click on a page or like a post that maybe talks about, um, let's say, menopause or a hot flush, you know, something that's a little bit indicative of your age and your gender and where you're at in your life. There will be a, a liquor company that has used the algorithms to target anyone who likes that kind of material so that you then see their um, advert in your feed so they can specify to Facebook if anyone likes any material about you know hormone replacement therapy or menopause we want to hit those people with our ad for the sparkling wine that's going to make your life um, more fun and so they can you know or if you're searching on your laptop for collagen powder and then you, you know you can you might search on a on a search engine, collagen powder, and then you go to your social media on a different device and there's an ad for mm-hmm, collagen powder. Mm-hmm. Like if you, that actually happened to me. Um, then again, liquor companies can be like, anyone who's got any connection to collagen powder, we want to hit them with our ad for these, this, you know, organic botanical gin. Like they just, they can, it's so, anything they can pick up on. How much money we spend on our credit cards. Um, the kind of people we like and pages we like, um, what our, you know, what times of the day we're on. I mean, they know, they just, the algorithms are scarily clever and it is no accident the ads you see. Just be aware I'm, of that. How old am I? 54? No, 53. I just started getting uh, ads on my Facebook feed for disposable undergarments, you know, <laughs> like the adult diapers. <laughs> I was like, come on. Come on. <laughs> 
but um, uh, you know, those things we can laugh at a little bit. And I've, I've used ads on Facebook to promote books and different things. And I know how you can, you can drill down and choose the regions and the, the education bracket and the age bracket and all of that. But this seems to go a little bit deeper than that even. So when someone is, uh, let's say they know that you're going through a divorce potentially, because uh, you maybe have a certain search history that is indicative of what you would search to be going through a transition like that in your life. Boy, that's a really vulnerable time. You and I both know that a lot of the women in particular that reach out to us are going through a big transition like that. And what's so hard about divorce is that if they're shared custody, a lot of women are struggling on their time without their children. So their time when they're by themselves, uh, either drinking to have fun and it gets out of hand or drinking because they're devastated and lonely and that their life is this, you know, polar opposite of utter loneliness and then overwhelm of being a single parent sometimes and being alone other times. Anyway, so that's a real vulnerable time in someone's life. So to target alcohol to them during that time is really throwing gasoline on potential problems. And that's where it starts to make me angry that when people are vulnerable, they're being targeted. That's really frustrating. Yeah, and then add to that that they're in an environment where, I don't know about what it's like where you live, but you, if I go to the supermarket, the wine is sitting right next to the tasty cheese um, and feta. And so you've got it on your social media, you've got it in your environment, you are feeling a bit vulnerable, emotional, sad, lonely, you know, all of those things. So you pick up that bottle, you take it home and you drink it and it works. This is the thing. In the moment that you actually sip the alcohol, mm-hmm. it works. You get the dopamine hit in your brain. It, it warms you. It fills you with a feel-good chemical. It works briefly. But we can't we can't deny that fact. You know, it, people aren't mugs. They're not just doing this because it's, you know, stupid. Like, it works in the moment. And so, and there's, so your environment's championing it. The drug works. There's no reason. There's no wonder that people just keep picking it up and doing it. But this is where I just really, really want people to open their eyes and be honest. Is it actually working? You know, you have that first sip at 5 p.m. How are you at 10 p.m.? How are you at 3 a.m.? How are you at 9 a.m. the next morning? Like, really look at it. And then you've got the tricky thing that we know so well, Jean, of if you then decide, okay, it's not working for me. You have to do this mammoth effort to take it out of your life while it's being kind of pushed on you everywhere. You feel like, am I mad? Why is this not working for me where it seems to be working for everyone else? <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> What's wrong with me? And then, and so it's so complicated and we're all bloody heroes, those of us who get sober. I mean, really, and this is why we all need to keep on talking and connecting with each other because we've got to get the truth out You know, it was one of the last times that I interviewed you that you said, I don't know why we're ever surprised that anybody gets addicted to alcohol. I mean, alcohol is addictive. And uh, I now say that all the time. You know, we call people who, who drink alcohol without getting addicted to it, we call them normies, but they're not the normal ones. We're the normal ones. It's addictive and we get addicted to it. And then 
we feel like there's something wrong with us because this has happened. It's right. So we true. have to turn that thinking upside down. We have to stop looking at I it know. as if, you know, nature takes its course and then we feel bad about it. That just doesn't make sense. I know, but here's the other, that's the other tricky thing though. Not everyone gets mm. addicted. Okay, why is that? I mean, that's the truth of it. Yeah, well, that's the truth of it. My husband is a casual drinker. He doesn't have the pull. He can open a bottle of wine and have a glass and leave the rest of it in the fridge for two weeks. I mean, who does that? Certainly not me. Um, Why is that? Well, this this is the curious thing about addiction. It's very, very common, but it doesn't happen to everyone. And there's no clear reason why that is. The the experts will tell you that it's a the addiction is a mixture of psychological, social, and physical things, right? It's a and it can be a bit of a mystery sometimes. There's a lot of pointers for things like childhood trauma. There's a lot of pointers to things like learned behavior. There's a lot of pointers that are environmental, a whole bunch of factors that could go into why I got addicted and my husband didn't. But the bottom line is some people don't, which is why I'm always saying alcohol doesn't need to go away. I mean, it's not going to ever go away. But at least we have to acknowledge many people get addicted for whatever reason. So we need an environment that makes it easier for them to put their hand up and also stops the lies that this product is harmless because it isn't. Lana, have you had any pushback from big alcohol, from the alcohol industry for speaking out in this way? Do you know what? I wish I had because it would have meant the books had a bigger impact. (laughs) I was was sort of nervous thinking they're going to come for me, but um, the book hasn't, you know, changed the world, sadly. Uh, I think it's going to be a slow burner, this book. It it did well in New Zealand where it was released a few months back. Um, It went on the bestseller list for a couple of weeks. You know, it's bubbled Congratulations. Yeah, but it hasn't sort of been a, you know, wow, this book, everyone must read, you know. So um, I don't think they're terribly worried about me. They've probably got an eye on me, but I'm I'm just, I'm pretty small fry in general. So no, I haven't experienced any um, pushback. Uh, well, we're starting a movement. I really believe that. Um, we're the old timers around here that are talking about this and holding space for the conversation. And what I hope that is happening is that we're building a foundation, you know, that that um, other people will come behind us and take it a little further. And it's so important what you're doing. And I love how you talk about things so pragmatically. I mean, you know, we don't have to make a big song and dance about it just to call BS on the whole on the whole idea that this needs to be normalized and accepted and that that we should be somehow outcast for being alcohol free. I mean, I love that we're just having a, a normal conversation full of giggles and and <laughs> shrugs. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, as much as I've written a book that wants to change the world, we can only change ourselves. And so that's why, you know, I keep and I know you do too working on being the best people we can be. Um for ourselves and for all of the people we love. And and that that is the biggest circle of goodness that we can let ripple out. And so anyone who's listening to this right now, you know, you've just got to know if you just work on yourself and being the best, most real, honest, grounded, raw, emotionally, you know, gloriously, emotionally messy person you can be, that is heroic and will make a difference. 
You devote the last section of the book to the practicality of life after alcohol and the the realistic uh, look at what it's like to get off of alcohol. Let's talk about that for a little bit. I mean, it's a long way in the past, and yet it feels like yesterday. What do you see as sort of being the essential pillars of getting started on breaking up with alcohol? If you can, be excited. Because, you know, you, you have no idea what's coming, but it'll be so worth it. So if you can bring a measure of excitement, that, that, that will be helpful. And also a real sort of attitude of open curiosity because um, you're going to learn things. I mean, I gosh, I, I had discoveries about myself that I had no idea about. And that's... That's what I loved about recovery early on was when I realized, hang on a minute, I'm not just learning how to not drink. I'm actually learning how to be emotional because I've been avoiding emotion my whole life and particularly sadness. I, I was running a mile from sadness. And once I figured out that's what it was all about, that's where it got really interesting for me. And that interest has kept me going. So as much as possible, bring those sort of that sort of open, excited, curious energy and then just strap in because you're in for a bumpy ride. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you say curiosity. I, I thought I really knew myself and that quitting alcohol would fix me. You know, it was, I thought everything's perfect except for this. Once I quit drinking, then I'll be perfect. And I wonder if I would have been as excited about quitting had I known that quitting was going to reveal to me that it wasn't that at all, that I had, that I had a lot of things that I needed to change about myself. And yet that's really been the best part, honestly, because it's so much easier to be me now. <laughs> yeah. So how, how have you, I don't know if you can summarize what you've sort of the main sort of part of your character that you were in, denial I don't want to use the word denial but we weren't awake to because for me if I could just quickly say for me I I realize now and I mentioned it briefly before that I'm a very watery person my my natural go-to state is quite sad and watery you know I don't if something happens that's hurtful I don't harden with anger I soften and kind of go and I cry all the time and this is the part of me that I was avoiding my whole life and it's taken me a good nine years to really realize this and embrace it and and love it I mean I I used to say sadness was my least favorite emotion, but now when I feel sad, I feel so tender towards myself. It's actually lovely. So, oh, that's so nice. So wait, did you have shame around that? Were you raised to think that crying was bad or weak? Yes, yes, that, but also it just so bloody uncomfortable. I just, I just felt like I was being made to wear a, a hairy, scratchy suit and I didn't want that feeling. So uh, it was probably a bit of shame, a bit of weakness, but just mostly discomfort with it. Mm. Um, I wanted to be fun, upbeat Lotta all the time, and I'm not there. I mean, I am, but I'm not all the time, and I've got this other side of me that I'm now so connected in with, and um, it's just who I am. <laughs> I mean, do, do you have so like, how do you feel about that part of you that you weren't sort of aware of? Yeah. Okay. So I was definitely in the hustling for my worthiness 
phase. Um, I, I think I had a real sense of, uh, what I later learned, they call imposter syndrome, you know, of thinking I, I, um, have to somehow, I don't deserve to be here. So I have to earn my place. I have to do more than everyone else. I have to try harder than everyone else. And so what that turns a person into, uh, and here's the irony because you're trying to be a people pleaser, but it makes you a really annoying person because, <laughs> because I was always doing way too much and thinking that my value as a human depended on it. And so I was really easily offended, really easily upset. Uh, it made me really quite jumpy because I felt like I had to be hyper-vigilant of anyone seeing the truth of me, which is funny now. I mean, because I am on this podcast talking about <laughs> my flaws all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, but I still, my go-to really is to sort of be untouchable. So had you known me, you know, 10 years ago, I would walk into a room dressed to the nines, high heels, hair done, makeup perfect, and sort of gaze around the room. I see other women do this and I know exactly what they're doing, never making eye contact with anyone. But what I was really doing was trying to find my place in the room, taking the temperature of the room and trying to figure out how I could slide in without being noticed. And yet, you know, when you walk in and you're overdressed and sort of over presenting yourself, you get noticed. So I was always in this like, oh God, people are noticing me. Oh God, what am I going to do? And then trying to sort of over make up for it. So feeling like I had to be super personable, super informed, well-spoken, over-prepared. How exhausting. (laughs) Right? It's even just talking about it, I feel sorry for myself. And women, if you're doing that, I see. Imagine if you'd gone to the grave like that. Yeah, it was really draining. And the other thing I did, uh, tell me if you did this too, I said yes to everything. Can you be on this committee? Yes. In fact, I'll chair that committee. Can you help with the school bingo? Yes. In fact, I will run the bingo. No, that's not me. (laughs) I was doing all of that because I couldn't say no. And also because uh, I would get so much self-identity from doing these things. Oh, interesting. No, you see, this is, I, I, I was more, I was more selfish than that when I was drinking. I was definitely looking out for myself more. And if I didn't want to be like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I just want to go home and have my wines. Well, it gets really hard to be doing everything when all you want to do is go home and have wine. So then that made it quite a frantic cycle because I started to really resent everything I was doing because I didn't want to do it. And also because it was making it, you know, I was always looking at my watch. Can I get home and have that drink? So um, it became a real, it was a real problem. And recovery was uh, all about getting those things that made me uncomfortable. I had to get them out of my life. I had to resign from committees and step down from things and, and stop doing stuff for a while and just really figure out who I was and what I liked. Mm, and hallelujah yeah all all those people still doing that and this is what the greatest gift is it's like make yourself uncomfortable ladies because in doing so you'll find out who you are and then you'll be so because you want to go to your grave knowing I mean this is the thing I could have gone to my grave as that stupid person that was trying to be upbeat all the time and didn't want to examine anything and never wanted to cry 
and that's not me. <laughs> and now, now I know I'm actually living like who I am, just as you are living as who you are. And this is why sober people put out this air of groundedness because we're comfortable, we're getting comfortable with who we actually are. Oh, and to go back to what you said about your sister saying, I want what you have. Here you embrace this aspect of your personality that you felt shame about. And once you really started to be authentic in yourself in that way, you had something that other people wanted and sought for themselves. Isn't that amazing? Oh, I know. I know. She's so beautiful too. And she's so generous to me when she talks like this. Like She even made me a speech the other day when we were walking the dog and said, I don't know who I'd be. I don't know that I'd be who I am today if it weren't for you. I mean, this is very intense coming from my big sister who I've looked up to my whole life. But here's the thing. I'm not a hero, everyone. I'm not special. I'm just another sober person. Everyone who does this has this impact on the people around them. So everyone is capable of impacting people around you just by the simple act of taking that carcinogenic addictive drug out of your life. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. That is so true that there's there's something magnetic about a person who is being really authentic and okay with themselves. I mean, that's what we're all drawn to because I think it's what we all want and the world keeps telling us we're wrong for wanting it. So when anyone does that, they become a beacon for others. Yeah, there's that great saying, you know, attraction, not persuasion. Mm-hmm. And actually, if I'd tried to lecture my sister for years, she would have closed down, but I didn't. And so you just you just live and be and do what you do. Well, people like us, we also write books and go on podcasts and things like that. But <laughs> generally speaking, just move around our lives not drinking. And that is the most powerful thing that you can actually do to impact other people's behavior. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing. There's a a great quote by Anne Lamont that says, the lighthouse doesn't run around the island looking for ships to save. It just stands there and shines its light. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Oh, you're so poetic. Gosh, you should write a book of poetry. Oh, wait, you have. And I love it. (laughs) I love your book so much, Jean. I really love it. It is a gift. And I'm buying it for the sister that I've just been talking about for Christmas because I know she's going to love it too. Oh, that means the world to me. You were one of the first people that read my book because I asked you to blurb it. And then I I said, don't, you don't have to agree to blurb it until you've read it because you might not like it. And then you were just so sweet and supportive. I really, really appreciate that. I read the poems out in the workshops that we run on addiction and recovery. I, I read them out sometimes at the end. People love them. So really, you're having an impact here in New Zealand. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, I hope to come there someday and meet you in person and see where you live. When the world opens up again. Yeah, exactly. When the world opens up again, I'm going to go travel all over it. I I would just love it if I could go everywhere and meet all the listeners of the show and all the guests and just... Have a big global hug. That would be great. Oh, that would be great because I do feel <laughs> disconnected from all of the lovely sober people around the internet because um, there's, um, I think I'm the only one here in New Zealand. <laughs> You're the only one? You're the only sober person in New Zealand? No, the only kind of online, you know, no, definitely not sober, but the only kind of busy online person in the recovery world. 
Ah, oh, well, I hope you're inspiring others around you to do the same. There's room for more, that's for sure. There sure is. Well, Lada, thank you for spending time with me today. It's always such a joy to speak with you. Can you tell our listeners how they can find you and reach you and get your book? So the book is available on Amazon um, over in North America as of now. It's not available in the UK until um, January, unfortunately, but ebook is available worldwide at the moment. Paperback's available now if you just search it on Amazon. And for me, if you just look up Mrs. D is Going Without, I'm on Facebook and and everywhere, and I run this online community called Living Sober, um, which is funded by the New Zealand government, and that's a free online community. So I'm pretty easy to find. Well, thank you for your time here today, listeners. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with Mrs. D as much as I have. I'm grateful for all of you and for this community that we have as we head into another winter of isolating and taking care of ourselves. I'm grateful that we have this time together. So that's all for this week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care. I did that, not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame strong just cause you'll keep it on the side it just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride turn the light on turn the light on you can shine when you see old i did that not proud but that was me and when i face it i take back a little dignity i'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oops, head on You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear You don't need to whisper to confession every ears The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror and the one who matters most can always hear When you say old, different Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you said on me When you say old, different Not proud, but that was me I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from